0: Hi and welcome to Technotopia, I'm John Biggs. This is a podcast about a better future and we're talking to Finn Brunton, assistant professor at NYU, who studies spam, cryptocurrencies, and privacy. It's a fun discussion, we hope you enjoy it. So three, So welcome back to Technotopia, I'm John Biggs, and today we're talking to Finn Brunton. He's an assistant professor at Department of Media, Culture, and Communications at New York University, my alma mater, and you, Finn, work in multiple mediums. You work in Bitcoin, you're working in protest and obfuscation, and you also are an
1: expert in spam, is that right? yes. (laughs) <laughs> almost... I, special, I specialize in like uh, sort of I, I like to think of, of what I fo- so I was actually f- like more formally trained as a historian of technology sure. and what I became really fascinated by was like I, I grew up around and a lot of my friends are engineers like mm-hmm. hyper rational like really calm really thoughtful people and what came to fascinate me is how is it that all these technologies are always put together by these tremendously rational utilitarian people and always end up being turned to these unbelievably perverse complex ends. How does that happen? And so, yes, yeah, so I used to do, um, website administration and stuff like that. And I started to become obsessed with spammers, particularly mm-hmm. wiki spammers, because it was like, I the more I learned about the history and the kind of complex legacies of the internet and the web, the more I kind of just became obsessed with the people who derailed it in all these bizarre directions, all these like unforeseen outcomes. And and very much like seeing similar things coming out of cryptography and then being adapted into developing money and currency mm-hmm. systems and and seeing... Uh, social network processes getting turned against themselves by people who wanted to fight for their privacy using what my colleague helen nissenbaum and i call obfuscation techniques so yeah basically i specialize in how technology goes wrong or goes awry
0: so this might this might have been a uh, this we might have chosen poorly because this is about how everything's going to be happy but 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 wait, there's more.
1: That's sort of I was excited about this. Okay. Is that I am at heart an optimist and and something very close to a utopian. Okay. And part of what intrigues me about these systems is both seeing how like like looking at how we can potentially make better choices in the future by looking at how particular technical choices in the past have led to you know unforeseen negative problematic outcomes but also but also seeing the ways in which the ways in which we can still produce enormous amounts of innovation Mm -hmm. and social value out of systems that still have all kinds of horrendous, you know, like dysfunctional components, you know, that we can still, we can still advance regardless of that. Because I, I very sincerely, like, believe that we are, and this is always a dangerous thing for a historian to say, but I really do believe that we are actually living through a really unique historical moment, um, (laughs) and that we have a lot of opportunities in that moment to create positive outcomes for society at large in ways that were previously not available to us for the whole of human history. So, So it's very much something where like, I, but it's because, it's because I still have to, I still have to, you know, on my kind of more empirical side like look squarely at the perverse parts and the breakdowns and the scams and all of that kind of thing precisely so I don't get completely swept up in uh, in my own conviction that we are on the verge of great things.
0: Okay, so let's so let's figure out what spam is going to look like in in 20 years. What's the future of spam? Oh man. Why, why does it why does it exist? Is it like a, is it a fungus, is it a virus, is it is a <laughs>
1: there's actually there's a whole section in the in the book that ultimately got cut just a little part of it still persists that was called spam and its metaphors mm-hmm. It was just a blow by blow history of people trying to figure out how to talk about this new thing, how to come up with some kind of analogy or metaphor that would allow them to like get to grips with what this is but but the the so the the thing with spam that is that that is both because I I really, I love this thread of like the technotopia and trying to kind of like stay close to that. So the thing about spam that is both positive and negative is that it's a phenomenon that turns up pretty consistently going back through the decades, like Mm -hmm. not just before the web, but before the internet as such, um, wherever we have these new aggregations of human attention. And, And I think that's a really important point that... When we, whenever you see spam, what you're actually seeing is something like the, the byproduct, the side product of an enormous <laughs> surplus of new forms of human attention being gathered in, on, on these new platforms. That's actually, I think, very significant because wherever you're seeing that, you're also seeing something very salient, which is the, the ability of humans to like start to, to focus on things, often with the aid of machines, in ways that they previously have not been able to, to like pool conversation. Conversations pool their efforts. So
0: that's so just try is to- like the is like the byproduct is the sludge of the <laughs> production of human attention.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's something where you can you can see sort of point by point, whether you're looking at at Usenet, whether you're looking at the very earliest forms of email, you start to go forward through broad adoption of email, through message boards, through the rise of social networks, through Twitter, Facebook, through search engines, finding new ways to index all of this content that's being put on the network, through wikis. At every single point, you have a novel technology for gathering and rewarding human focus, mm-hmm. and then you immediately can like tell that that's there, because there's a the follow-on effect of like small groups trying to predate on that in various ways. Um, And and that's the thing is, I think in some ways, when you ask what like, you know, the question I often get asked to like take your question and push it a little bit further is will spam continue to exist? Because it does for a lot of us, it seems like something that's kind of diminishing to some degree, right? It's certainly not as bad as it was for those of us who are a million years old and remember the 1990s, you know, Um, like if you're on Gmail now, you by and large don't see it, even though it's still there. but but part of my argument is that spam will, in various ways, still be with us. And we've seen proliferating systems from ebook spam to mm. YouTube spam to all of the social networks having different kinds of spam accounts propagating on them. And in an odd way, that's kind of a good thing because there have been a handful of spam free network communications platforms and the reason they were spam free is that they were almost completely locked down they were like specified
0: or, or nobody was there
1: <laughs> yes yeah exactly or they were empty you know like <laughs> vacuous like you can totally like if you want to have a, a spam free experience you can go to like a failing massively multiplayer online game sure. you know you're just like walking around through the empty you know video landscape or well, you
0: get over to google plus and see how that's going
1: <laughs> yeah, you can just hang out there and watch the tumbleweeds blow by. (laughs) Um, Or you could, like, going further back, you could, like, adopt a system like Minitel, you know, like the French government's sort of state proto-internet system, which was an amazing system and which provided a lot of different kinds of functionality for the French population, but which was like a very it was essentially like a kind of weird like video text system people used it for lots of different kinds of purposes it was very inventive but it was also like often brought up as like well there's a system that seems almost completely devoid of spam and it's like well yeah sure because it can only do a small handful of things which are all specified very precisely in advance so when you look at the way that like twitter is struggling with spam Facebook is having all kinds of issues with spammers, not just in the sense of spammers who are advertising to us as users, but people who are doing things like link farming and all, all that sort of bad behavior. I want to suggest, if this doesn't seem too optimistic, that in a way, that is kind of a a hopeful sign because those things are happening because these new systems do not have a perfectly specified model of what a user looks like or what socialization looks like. They don't have models that are sufficiently precise for how things are to be used that allow them to... Perfectly reliably exclude bad behavior, Mm -hmm. and while that can lead to socially negative outcomes, it also means that this is a space where we are inventing new things, we are innovating new forms of identity and new forms of online activity, and we can partially see that because they are being gamed.
0: Hmm. I mean, I'm I'm a I've written multiple times that I've that I understand why spam happens. So if I'm trying to get attention for a book the only way to get attention at this point in the game is to spam it's and it's yeah. and it's awful it's it, it makes you feel bad but it works so to some degree there's like there i guess there are levels of spamming so there's some there's like a there's a i guess the, you can you can talk on social media or you can shoot mm-hmm. a bazooka into social media or <laughs> you can inundate social media with garbage and yeah. all three of those really work uh, but but, yeah. the, but the talking on social media is working less and less, which is pretty frustrating. So you basically need a new social media. You basically it's it's like the it's like the Native Americans leaving the camp after they've after they've filled it up with garbage and they go to the next one, I guess.
1: Yeah, leave the midden pile. Mm-hmm. And we, yeah. No, well, and, and oh, sorry, go on. I didn't
0: mean to interrupt. No, I mean just uh, so what you're essentially saying is that in even in a utopia there has to be some sort of some sort of leakage there has to be some sort of attention attention um hunting predators that are going to use the system for their own ends no matter what i mean unless unless we come into a perfect in, into a, a perfectly uh efficient friction free commerce system where you can't make where it costs more to spam than to than to just sell stuff normally right yeah
1: yeah. No, and there and there have been a number of different proposals over the years that sort of built on exactly that to find and in fact one of them as I'm sure as I'm sure you know is actually a really interesting root component of what became bitcoin was a project to try to think about like generating very small sets of hashing problems mm-hmm. that would make it extremely difficult to send email in large volumes sure. without doing this you know adam back stuff. So but but to your point, like this is this is one of those things where like so so there's been this whole recent kerfuffle on um, Twitter around managing not even people who are doing straight up tweet spamming where you're like getting you know DMs or weird follow requests mm-hmm. or people's accounts getting hijacked but instead accounts that seem more or less like they might belong to actual people but the whole focus of the account. Is to retweet other accounts in a larger network that is uh, trying to sell people SoundCloud listens. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can like put up your song, <laughs> and then you can like yeah. And and the thing about that, the reason why that is simultaneously frustrating and in some ways like you know a waste of Twitter and a contravention of their terms of service and blah blah blah. But it's also something where it's like, why does that exist? Well, it exists because there are there is not just. A new microblogging platform that we are still like sort of coming to understand how it works and what human activity looks like on it. But that platform is now part of a larger ecosystem of mechanisms for trying to share and metricize media. And a lot of the reason why these sort of innovative spamming techniques can slip under the radar is precisely because we keep inventing new mechanisms. And that is a positive thing. And a situation where you can like completely nail that down mm-hmm. is, is absolutely possible, but I would argue that that in some ways might be counterproductive, that we might be getting, you know, it's a classic sort of balancing your externalities thing. We might actually be getting more good out of having a relatively innovative environment um, in which we, we are, you know, people are taking on new kinds of identities, they're taking, we're operating through many different kinds of platforms, they are connecting in ways that we've never seen before. We might be getting more out of that than we lose from having the ability of spammers to exploit that system.
0: All right, so so in the future, spam will always be with us until we all die. That's right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, yes, but, and this might be actually, but it's it's
0: utopianist. It's still still important that it does exist.
1: Yes, yeah, and and it's one of those things where it's like these are. you know the like you're gonna pay certain kinds of like these are all the different kinds mm-hmm. of trade offs we have to find ways to make that we're going to pay certain kinds of prices. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a strong advocate for the the value the utility of having spaces for privacy and anonymity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, like you know just to just to take this in a in a slightly different direction. Um, so. One of the reasons why I really strongly support um, a lot of different kinds of identity concealing and protecting technologies is because they're vital for whistleblowing, for like anti-corruption, like knowing that people can safely report, for example, unsafe work conditions or solicitation of bribes. Like these are things that help to keep a country and a culture safe from the steady rot of corruption and malfeasance. And the fact that those tools and platforms exist also to some degree lets them be exploited by trolls and creeps and, mm-hmm. you know, gamer gators and various kind of, you know, bad actors. And, and at some point, we have to say, okay, we're going to find some ways to try to sort of police that or recognize that that's a problem or manage that. But we need to have on balance the fact that these things exist makes it possible for people to come forward or provide documents that can, uh, like, solve very serious social problems mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's just to say that there there is like kind of a, a balance there, and I suspect that spam is kind of indicative of a sort of inventive, freewheeling, not necessarily tied with real world identities sort of operation. Um, and just to just to, to speak to your point about thinking about the future, there is one really interesting component of this as well, which is that spammers have always in their own crude way been very innovative about um, fusing or or um, inventing machine systems, whether machine learning systems or permutative text systems mm-hmm. that allow them to, in one way or another, pass for human. And human-machine collaboration is a really interesting aspect of spam, and that's one that's only going to amplify. So I suspect one of the really curious things we're going to see in, like, 20 years is not just that, in one way or another, spam will still be with us, but that all the distinctions between human and machine that are coming out of that space will be mm-hmm. completely evaporated. So, the, uh,
0: so the, blogging, the blogging world is basically we – can, we can basically shut that out because basically the robots are going to be able to write positive posts about their products. So
1: the brands <laughs> –
0: Are going Mm -hmm. to become bloggers for themselves.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And you can already see like kind of early versions of things like this happening. Like Thompson Writers has been experimenting. Yeah, yeah, with all those things where you can like feed in stats from a baseball game and it'll write you a sports reporting story. Um, And just imagine something like that where you could just be like, you know, Kraft or Unilever or whatever. And you could just sort of be like, yeah, we're going to (laughs) like buy a slice of this server somewhere put all these instances on it and have those just like generate a population of billions who are more excited about Cheetos than anyone has ever been, you know. Um, Once again, yeah. we remind
0: you that this is Technotopia, a <laughs> podcast about a better future.
1: However, but, but, but that's the thing is that at the same time, the same technologies that enable that are also enabling like these increasingly brilliant uh sure. um, like deep learning systems for, for, uh, reading and filtering that. So like in my, in my dream version of the future, Mm -hmm. you actually have like two interfaces and one is like a wall size thing that is like a, you know, a Dr. Strangelove scale, real time map of everything that's happening on the network. That's all these flows of data that is sort of the, the picture of the world at that moment. But the other, the other is a machine selected perfectly appropriate, perfectly interesting, incredibly important single link to one thing for that day that is the thing that is going to like direct your life on a tremendously important course, the thing that's going to be of the greatest possible significance to you. And That kind of learning process is one of the things that is evolving out of spam filter technologies, out of precisely trying mm-hmm. to distinguish all of the content farming crap, whether it's humans or machines cranking it out. From those things that are like truly significant and salient
0: i could also see us having our own ais which are going to basically be fighting the other ais for our attention (laughs) so it's like the it's like the uh the courtier comes up to the to the king and and says this guy's this guy's the most important one to talk to as opposed to all this these 50 million other people all right yeah all right, so I'll 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 give I'll give you I'll I'll give you that that's a, that's that's utopianist. That's utopianist. That'll that'll work. We won't cut we won't cut this this first 15 minutes out. In terms of privacy. So let's let's yes. not go the absolute the other way. What is privacy and what what is the importance of privacy in the future?
1: That's a really good question. And and I think that the precisely be, it's a really good question for a couple of different reasons and one of them is that much like spam, privacy is a word that is so Nuanced and socially complex it 's something that so many people mean different things by um, that it can be very tricky to talk about and it can sometimes lead to seemingly contradictory outcomes um, but I think for for purposes of of this podcast for purposes of thinking about the utopian future um, i would I would say that privacy is and this is this is a a, a statement I'm somewhat taking from a whole discourse about privacy that's been mm-hmm. going on for years in law and policy and academia privacy is the degree of choice that is available to you about the information that you disclose to other people and what is done with that information so I I want to sort of focus on that definition because I think it's something that really speaks to the situation that we're in now, not just privacy as like an abstract category or a metaphysical good, but but as something that is about a degree of freedom, that is about a degree of control. Um, And it's one that I think we can, can see in our everyday lives in the form of how Pop ups and user patterns and choices that are provided to us in apps and browsers and all kinds of different formats are structured around either trying to make that freedom available to us or surreptitiously or explicitly take it away. Um, so, in terms of like thinking about it as, as a situation that we're in and as a future that we should be working towards, I think that having those degrees of freedom is, and this is one of, the, one of the reasons why I feel very optimistic about our present moment, is that for all of the trouble that's going on with the, the vast spread of ad networks and state surveillance architectures and things like that, we are also living through kind of a unique period in human history in which it has become possible to be a private person In ways that were, for the vast majority of people, either impossible or extremely difficult to realize in the Mm -hmm. past. And we're starting to figure out what it means for us to have access to those choices. So the reason I say all of this is that often when we start talking about privacy online, it's easy to... Either fall into the trap of like, well, I feel like I have nothing to hide and I don't see why this is so important, or into assuming that this is something that is strictly the business of, you know, like really intense crypto dudes who like, mm-hmm. you know, won't like the, the guys who like and I say this with love because they're very much my community and my heart is is with them <laughs> all times. But nonetheless, the guys who are the reason for the joke about how the problem with like getting onto encrypted chat platforms is that then you can only hang out. With with people who are also on those platforms, <laughs> just talking about stuff like this. Um, but, that, but to instead expand that in a more general way and say privacy is about the choice that we all make. It's about the choice that we make when we're talking to a friend and we are, making, we are relying on shared understandings of both what we want to share with them but also what we think they're going to do with that information. You know, are they going to, like, allow us to confide in them? Are they going to circulate it further and so on? This is uh, this is what um, my colleague, who I wrote this obfuscation book with, Helen Nissenbaum, calls contextual integrity. It's the idea that all of our information... Is only important in terms of different contexts that yeah. we we want to know that we're talking to a friend in confidence over a social network and not to our friend and also the police and okay. also whoever you know has put one of the, has put like a single pixel ad tracker on the site that loads without our knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Et cetera. Hmm. So, so, so the s- suggestion here is that there is going to be sort of selective privacy. If I have a I can exist as a person on the internet and off the internet, yes. uh, a public person. But then if I need to, if I need to do things that I want to do, whether they be in terms of my relationships, in terms of the whistleblowing that I want to do, the writing mm-hmm. I want to do, the, it's going to get far easier to, to disassociate yourself from the human that you are and put yourself out there in a digital way that is completely untraceable.
1: Yeah, no exactly. And I think it's something where we are um we are going to become steadily more like granular in this mm-hmm. respect. Like there's going to be more fine-grained ap- forms of approach to this where you can You can precisely, like, and I suspect one of the really interesting things about this is that we are going, we're a very adaptable species, and we tend to discover, like, new things about what we are capable of or what we are interested in when those affordances become available. Mm -hmm. And I suspect we are going to see, in really interesting ways, much more, like, um, complex senses of identity that we have that goes beyond the kind of, like, I think a very pernicious component of the way that social networks evolved in the early, mid-2000s was around this model of public and private as being binary, you know, that you're either a private person or a public person, that everything is sort of out or it's not. And and instead to sort of say that there is, there are, there are much more degrees of things that to put this in a in a in a somewhat more historical way, one of the really compelling things for me about going back into the history of people's identity was the degree of flexibility that people created in an analog world, where writers would like write under various pseudonyms, like mm-hmm. some of them consistently, like this pseudonym would be for writing this kind of thing. Um, certain sorts of anonymous public announcements would be made. There would be things that they would write under their own names. There would be like we we can take on many different kinds of selves and i suspect that that will be the basis for a great deal of amazing cultural production that is going to come to pass where part of the question of course not to hopscotch a little bit but part of the question that's going to link into this in a larger way that's interesting to think about from the perspective of payment systems is if you can create a situation in which it's possible for someone to be you know um, Stephanie, whatever, real identity person who is also, you know, XBOT 2007, mm. the amazing dubstep <laughs> producer. And for those two identities to never have to necessarily overlap while she can still be compensated for the incredible dubstep music that she's producing in that space. Like, if there's ways to move compensation around without necessarily having to link real world Hmm. identities together. I think that will be something that will lead to an amazing efflorescence of selves um, and and to some really interesting kinds of like personal flourishing that we have not really seen before. So
0: we're moving from multitasking to sort of
1: multi personality (laughs) Yes, that is actually no, that is a really good way of putting it. Because now I notice increasingly with the people that I spend time with who are sort of in more in one way or another, like experimental spaces Mm -hmm. that you like, you look over their shoulders while they're on their laptops, and they have multiple windows open. And those windows aren't just open to different apps, right? Those windows are open to different browsers that have different cookies on them that connect to different identities sure well you yeah, like, I so, mean yeah, now exactly. you have different totally slack chat
0: rooms that. that you're you talk to the like I have I have my fintech play that I talk to in there I have to be one person then I talk to the to the tech people in another one and then I talk to uh Stefan my partner in, in on Technotopia uh occasionally and then it's yeah. kind of it's interesting that's uh, that's actually okay so we, so we so we took away we took away a positive
1: yeah. <laughs> yes, totally, we totally did. We, we saved right. it. I think that it's going to be like like this is the thing, right? So like William Gibson liked to talk about how we we tend to like when we're when we look at science fiction, a lot of sci-fi is about externalizing because that's one of the best ways to kind of help us get to grips with it. It's about externalizing futuristic things that are actually going to be internally experienced. Hmm. You know, so he had this wonderful comment about how when you look back at like all of the virtual reality prognostications of the 90s which are now you know kind of coming back in in other interesting ways but but he said it was all about this idea that like you were going to have the giant goggles mounted on your head and doing all this stuff and he said look at people who are using smartphones now who are like stumbling into traffic mm-hmm. you know like they might as well have vr goggles on the vr goggles were a way for us to talk about the idea that future digital content that that virtual experience was going to be totally absorbing and engaging in this in this very profound way and i would suggest by the same token that one of the best things about sci-fi movies is like the the crowd scenes, right, where someone's like walking through the future bazaar in Chiba City and it's all like in the background. There's all these kind of like crazy, strange people who are part of weird, futuristic subcultures. I think that's a picture of what the insides of people's heads will look like in 20 or 30 years. Like that crowd is real. It's just that it's mostly like that, that experience is going to be inside of a single person as they toggle between these hmm. different selves. That's
0: so kind of... All right. That's, that, sounds, uh, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> so just to be super optimistic. Perfect.
1: You know? Yeah.
0: Finn, thank you very much. Uh, I'm glad we could have you on. This is, uh, this is very, very cool stuff. We, let's bring you back on a little later for the, uh, for the Bitcoin stuff, too, because I think that's – I didn't want to get too deep into that because that's one of your expertise. Where can people find uh, some information about you?
1: I, I, everything can be found at uh, finb.net. Mm-hmm. F-I-N-N-B.net.
0: And you're just—you've just completed a—you just completed a book, right? The uh, the obfuscation book.
1: Yes. Yeah. Helen Nissenbaum and I just uh, our book just came out, and I actually just had the best endorsement for it, which was, I was doing some research on the dark web on like onion sites. Mm-hmm. I was like navigating around between these different things. I was looking for these chat applications that have payment systems built in. And so I was on this one onion router site and I found a link at the bottom that was like library of crypto papers. And I clicked through and there was the obfuscation book in PDF. And I was so, like, awesome. You so know?
0: so in, in one way they stole it, but in another way it's uh, it's out there.
1: They're exactly the people I would like to be getting their hands on.
0: This has been Technotopia. I'm John Biggs. We will see you next week. Thank you for listening.